This episode is brought to you by Fizzy Vantage, now the official climbing nutrition sponsor of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. Fizzy Vantage is the leading brand in climbing nutrition. And just to name a few names, their pro athlete team includes Matt Foltz, Paige Klassen, Drew Ruana, Jonathan Segrist, Natalia Grossman, Melina Costanza, Brittany Gorris, Jordan Cannon, Katie Lambert, Jimmy Webb, and Daniel Woods. The list goes on and on. Basically, the who's who of high-performance rock climbing, they are all using Fizzy Vantage products. I personally love the supercharged collagen. I'm obsessed with getting stronger fingers, and I want to make sure I'm giving my body all the building blocks it needs to make stronger tendons, so I take supercharged collagen every day. If you would like to feel the Fizzy Vantage yourself, head over to fizzyvantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off any full priced nutrition product. That's fizzyvantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off your order. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt, and my guest today is Eric Hurst. Eric Hurst is back on the podcast. He's been on the podcast before. We did a two-part episode a couple years ago, back in episode 71 and 72. And if you don't know who Eric is and want a more comprehensive interview, we covered more of his backstory and how he got into coaching and training in that episode. But I will share a quick bio on Eric. Eric is the founder of Training for Climbing and the author of several books on Training for Climbing, including the book with that title, Training for Climbing, which is now in its third edition. He's also the founder of FizzyVantage and owns a nutrition company focused on providing rock climbers with better nutrition. I'm, of course, a huge fan of them. And Eric was at the forefront of Training for Climbing. He was one of the first people writing about it, researching it as early as the late 80s. And he's been studying this subject ever since. So he really is one of the most knowledgeable climbing coaches on the planet. And it was great to have him back on. We haven't talked in a while, so we got to catch up for a little bit. The first half hour or so of this conversation is just us catching up and also hearing about his latest hard send. Eric's 59 years old and climbed another 513C this past year, Kaleidoscope in the Red River Gorge. So it was really great to hear about that and what he's working on in his own climbing. And then we dove into the topic for today's episode, which is the top seven most common training mistakes that climbers make. These are some common pitfalls that Eric has noticed in his clients and self-coach climbers over the years. And I think especially for you self-coach climbers out there, this will be a super helpful episode. So I hope you enjoy the top seven most common training mistakes with Eric Hurst. Hey. Hey, hey. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Turn you up a little bit. Pretty good. It's uh, last week before I had on a long road trip, so it's like one of those crazy weeks, you know, <laughs> getting shit done and uh, <clears throat> you know, preparing uh, to you know hit the road for a good part of two months. So. Oh, that's exciting! And you're in Europe, right? I'm in Switzerland. Yeah, I'm sitting on my little balcony here. You can hear the uh, there's these goats down there that just they have cowbells or I guess goat bells <laughs> around their necks. Yeah. 
and oh, they yeah. never stop moving. They, I think they eat like 20 hours a day. You can just hear their bells at all hours of the night, all hours of the day. Yeah. Just jangling away over there. So, so where are you at specifically? Uh, Magicwood. We're in a little town called Andir, which is like an eight minute drive from Magicwood. Yeah. yeah. So are you there for the summer or what? Yeah, for another three weeks. And then I'm heading to Rocklands. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Good for you, man. Thank you. Yeah, it's very fun. How do you feel? Uh, I feel pretty good. I don't I don't feel totally amazing. Um, but I feel pretty good and I feel like it's kind of clicking in. I had kind of a weird few weeks leading up to the trip, lots of travel. It was hard yeah. to really stick to the training plan. Um, so I did a lot of base strength stuff in let's see, in like March into April, but had a few weeks where I wasn't able to climb a ton. So I don't feel super sharp, but right. it's kind of the, the yeah. strength is there and I think it's going to all come together. It's right. starting to, so you're not, yeah. you're not going to be on a rope anytime soon, huh? No, just bouldering. <laughs> yeah. Where no, are you no headed? Joe, no Joe exotic for you, right? No, not this season. Yeah. Not this season. Yeah. Cameron said something broke on that. Did yeah. Something did. That? One of the holds broke. I think Joe's going to fix it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it kind of worked out really well, actually. If I hadn't been going on this trip, I probably would have stayed and kept trying it. But uh, it was a weird, wet season. Like, there wasn't a very big window on that one this year. So yeah. I don't think I would have had very much time to try it anyway. No, I mean, Finn Cave was wet. Um, and uh, I guess when it finally dried out, then some holds broke on Bone Tomahawk. So. Oh, really? Yeah. Not, Cam and Joe didn't go there. They canceled their trip and went to Europe because it was wet in April. Yeah. But I guess um, just in the last month, uh, I guess a, a hold broke. So Joe's going to be doing repair work at a few places. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and my son broke a hold on um, resisting arrest at Mount Charleston. Mm. They're out there with uh, Joe now. Cameron and Jonathan are. Okay. So, uh, yeah. So I think it was just so wet out west that like this is going to be the year or Hopefully not, but you know, there's breakage obviously is an issue. Yeah. I guess I'd never thought about that with limestone. Is that a thing? Like limestone's more brittle when it's wet? Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, you know, the the rock is still porous and it's certainly not a I mean, you've drilled limestone, right? I mean, it's not like drilling granite. It's still pretty damn soft. Yeah. And so yeah, but you know, who knows? Um, but uh yeah, so I mean, we're heading out to Colorado, Wyoming, uh, and then up to Squamish in August. I'm speaking at this climbing medicine conference up there uh, in early August. And so we'll kind of finish up our summer. My wife and I, you know, we'll be taking our van out and uh, kind of doing the road trip and trying to run our business from the road, which is getting more complex every month, mm. uh, which is great. But it's like, it makes it even more stressful for me to travel now because like, yeah. there's so many things going on with this growing business. And uh, so, I mean, that's, that's good, but it's bad because it's like, I'm also at, at a stage in my life uh, where I'm trying to simplify things. You know, we finally have the kids out of the house um, and now I've uh, burdened myself with this, you know, expanding business. And so, uh, yeah, so it's exciting, but um I, I still want to try to climb hard the next, you know, five or 10 years while, you know, before the clock runs out on me. Yeah. So, yeah. And then I'm trying to do stuff like this. I'm still trying to, you know, do my training for climbing thing. I, I don't do any personal training anymore, except in rare cases, like with a pro mm. that contacts me. But otherwise, 
you know, there's enough other people out there doing that type of thing now that I refer, you know, to other coaches and, but I want to keep my podcast going. I want to keep my books alive, you know? Uh, and, you know, so I don't want to, um, you know, uh, give up on all of that. And I see it. I see that in fizzy vintage as being, you know, intimately connected, you know, because sure, yeah. me, me, me coach Hurst as the founder, you know, it's like, that's kind of what, fizzy vintage is all about is you know uh you know getting your training diet nutrition rest recovery everything right and not making training mistakes or mm-hmm. you, you know, reducing your training mistakes which makes this a good podcast for us to to jump into and uh and to cover here so yeah i think there'll be a lot of you know because most people listening to these podcasts are trying to self-coach you know for right. sure. i mean you know, there's a lot of coaches out there that people will buy a program from or consult with. But the fact is, the vast majority of climbers are doing what, you know, you did for years, which is trying to figure out what works for Stephen Dimmitt. Mm-hmm, uh, totally. And, you know, and so I think, uh, you know, this podcast kind of gets more to like the philosophy of, you know, uh, designing an effective program and trying to avoid some quicksand along the way. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. It all sounds good. I'm I'm curious, uh, just asking for my own, just out of my own personal curiosity, you're getting ready for this big trip. You're busy with like last minute things. Do you try to buy yourself some time? Like, are you frantically doing a bunch of work ahead of time to give yourself some slack while you travel? Or is it just business as usual and you got to figure out how to, you know, clock in and, and do your regular work while you're traveling? Is it some, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, no two weeks are the same. I mean, yeah. I have... Um, you know, I, it's like in my mind, I have planned out like what workouts I want to do in any given week. So because I work mostly at home, uh, you know, I just have to go downstairs to get a workout in so I can be very efficient in, you know, I can be here at my computer doing business and then, okay, I have an hour. I'm going to go down and do warm up and do a hangboard workout or a wall workout or whatever. Uh, and so that makes it very efficient, but yeah, I mean, for sure, cramming, uh, a lot of things I'm doing a podcast interview with Tom Randall tomorrow. I, I need to record my own training for climbing podcast, which I have outlined, but haven't recorded or edited yet. So I need to get that done this week. And, you know, so you know how it is, it's easy to kick a can down the road, but <laughs> when the road ends, like when a road trip begins <laughs> yeah. and you know, yeah. things end up getting compressed. And, uh, so yeah, it's going to be a, a pretty, uh, long week for me here yeah so i'm curious because uh i've like noticed i'm in an interesting headspace being here in switzerland like i want to be on vacation and my brain's kind of telling me on vacation but i can't really be fully on vacation like i still need to do some work you know and i'm (laughs) i'm like a little stressed about uh like the more I relax and chill, there's like a little bit of stress about getting behind. It's just interesting. It's all it's all kind of new to me, you know. I haven't taken a big yeah. trip and been my own boss and kind of yeah. Well, you've you've created a bit of a monster here. <laughs> in one in one way, uh, you know, uh, you've got yourself this new lifestyle of you know being self-employed with the podcast, and uh, you're creating just amazing content. I just want to congratulate on that. You on Thank that, you. you know, what you've done the last few years is amazing. And so I'm happy to see your success and your growth. But then, you know, you, kind of like me, you know, you still have to step back sometimes and say, hey, I, you know, I have to 
climb a little bit, yeah. train a little bit, and you know, still have goals to reach. And you're a young man, so I mean, you have a longer <laughs> horizon than I do. Uh, so maybe it's a little more urgent for me, uh, you know. But I'm um, I'm happy to see you're in Switzerland, and you know, you got to take rest days, especially as a boulderer. Yeah, 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 for sure. Climb hard a few days a week, right? So could be a pretty good you know, summer for you to get work done, I would think. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Rest days, <laughs> rest days or work days. That, that's a good, that works pretty yeah. well. Well, yeah, all right, I man. Mean, I, that's, that's the mode I'm going to shift into when we take the van West. And, uh, you know, as a route climber though, it's like you try to climb, so, you know, four day. I try to climb four days a week, you know? So, um, I don't know if you'll boulder four days a week. I mean, I guess you could, if they're short days. Yeah, I usually go, I've been going day on, day off, and that feels yeah. about perfect here. So, you know, some yeah, some weeks, good. some weeks, three days, some weeks, four four days, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, cool. uh, it's enough time to work to stay on top of everything. It's not enough time to like tackle all of the fun new things on my excited, you know, to-do list, the, the growth things, you know, like the new ideas the that are, things, yeah. that are exciting. Oh, yeah. and, well, that, that's my dilemma is, you know, every day I have the stuff that needs to be done. And then I have the stuff that I'd like to do that is more futuristic um, and growth oriented. And so that's where I kind of need to clone myself and <laughs> I'm learning to delegate and we're bringing a lot of new uh, players in, in, in terms of subcontractors and a couple of employees uh, that have expertise that I don't have and can offload stuff that I've been doing poorly, uh, you know, and uh, I'm very keen on, uh, you know, staying self-aware of the things that I can do well for Fizzy Vantage Nutrition and and then things I can't do well, mm. you know, uh, and that I need to, you know, um, offload and, you know, bring in experts that can take it to next level. And so, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. Right on. <laughs> Well, it's good to see you again. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, maybe we can make this an annual thing where we kind of catch up with the old climbing coach. Let's oh. <laughs> <laughs> see if I'm still at it here in terms of, you know, I saw one of my hardest routes uh, ever this spring. So at age 59, I feel pretty proud about that. Hell so. yeah, 59. Yeah, you did kaleidoscope, right? Yeah. yeah Congrats. Exactly. That thing looks yeah, amazing. Yeah, it just kind of happened. It just kind of happened. It was like the send that just happened, you know, w- without much of a plan. Yeah, you know, I kind of stalled on another project and um, was frustrated and, you know, a bit tweaky, you know, arthritic knuckles. And so I thought I would test something else out. And it like just came together relatively fast, you know, four or five sessions and 12 or 13 goes. And, you know, so... 13C in the grand scheme of things isn't that hard, but for, you know, uh, old coach Hurst, you know, where I, I grew up climbing in, you know, uh, hiking boots in the seventies, you know, <laughs> to be added and like pushing hard is kind of remarkable. And I'm hopefully I can keep it going another decade. That's the goal. Hell so. yeah. That's awesome. Well, it's, <laughs> it's an interesting thing. I feel the same way. It's like standards keep going up and up. I mean, especially being here in Switzerland, it seems yeah. like every single person in the forest climbs V12, you know? I'm like, where did all these people yeah. come from? But of course, yeah. you have to remind yourself, like you're in an international climbing destination. That's, you know, people come here because they're very strong and they care a lot about That's climbing. Right. But also, you know, the fact that a lot of people are flashing V12 now doesn't make it any easier, you know? Like, 
I, I still don't totally understand how to think about that because kids seem to have an easier time just leveling up and climbing really hard things. But I have to remind myself that a lot. Like, no, climbing's hard and hard climbing is hard. And yeah. just because, you know, tons of people flash my project doesn't mean that um, it, it changed. It, it's still just as challenging as it was. Yeah, so. yeah that's good perspective. And, and I agree 100%. And 513 is hard too. You yeah. Know, even, even though for, you know, Alex Megos, it's it's not. <laughs> right. <laughs> but for the vast majority of people, it's still pretty hard. And so is V12 or or, or whatnot. And totally. uh, but yeah, it's a different game, you know, for the the generation that grows up in a climbing gym, you know, and you know, gets into climbing at age five or six, you know, like my sons, you know, their their tendons are just completely different when they become adults than someone who doesn't climb through those adolescent years. And maybe gets into climbing at age 16 or 20. I don't know what year you got into climbing, but yeah, I was 18. It's just, yeah, it's just not the same. You know, right. you get into uh, climbing after puberty rather than before. Um, your tendons will still get stronger and gradually hypertrophy. Um, and obviously, you have a long timeline. I mean, Chris Sharma just did 15C at age 41 or 42. So, I mean, so cool. if you take care of your body and stay motivated, there's a long runway to uh to continue in this sport uh, and look at me i'm still trying to push that so um but yes you know if you started at in a gym uh or even you know outdoors like my kids uh and kind of climbed throughout adolescence their bodies are just different you know and uh, that makes them more bulletproof to injury and obviously you know it just they're starting in a different place than you or i did uh and so you know Getting to V12 just isn't that as, as much of a challenge. I mean, it's it's hard, but it's just uh, you know it's just a different world, right? Uh, for people like that, and so uh, yeah, it's exciting to see. And uh, boy, you know, it's hard to predict exactly what the future. I mean, how much harder can things get? Like, yeah. What, what is, who knows? What is V18 or 516? Um, I guess it just longer harder you know uh (laughs) yeah what it's going to come down to but um yeah at some point you start to reach human limitations so it's fun stuff to to talk about over a beer you know i enjoy those (laughs) conversations you know with my climbing science friends you know yeah coaching friends it's fun to you know you know muse about those things yeah totally the the one thing that's really cool you know because it's easy to look at all those kids and be like ah they're just different. They were, you know, they started earlier or whatever and, and feel discouraged about that. But the thing that's awesome is that it does benefit the rest of us too. Like I've noticed that the, you know, whatever my goal is, V12 and, you know, at this snapshot in time is my big goal for this year or climbing 514 is another one. Those numbers just feel less intimidating than they did five years ago, like by a lot, because I've seen so yeah. many people do them and it wasn't a big deal. It just, I don't know. You you do start to sponge some of that belief and it starts to break down some of that loftiness that that I know I've attached to some of those grades in the past. So I, I think you're right. It's pretty I cool. think there's a I think there's a yeah, I think there's an acclimation of sorts or normalization that occurs when you're around it. Uh, I think that's why, you know, like if you grow up in Switzerland just immersed in that or you grow up in France where you're immersed in it or you know, you grow up in Salt Lake City where you're immersed in it. Uh, it, it, you do kind of, your brain is a little different, uh, just how it sees things compared to, you know, if you grow up 
in Pennsylvania, <laughs> as I did, or, yeah. you know, um, somewhere where climbing, there's just not a lot of great climbers around. Uh, it gives you a different perspective. So I think there are kind of these hotbeds. And if you are born into one of them or move into one of them, you know, you, you can gradually, you know, have that paradigm shift that, you know, you know, yeah, 514 or V14 is really hard, but I'm seeing these people put it together and just maybe I can too. Mm, and, um, yeah. you know, but you know, this is a sport there's, you know, we've all talked about this so much. It's climbing is so complex, the mental, the technical, uh, you know, the physical aspects, you know, dealing with tweaks and injuries, uh, that it, it it's, it's something you can get good at fast, but to really optimize or realize your potential is you need to be thinking in decades, not not years. Mm. Um, and so, uh, unfortunately, some of those young kids who are crushing at age ten or twelve might burn out, might be out of the picture by age eighteen or twenty. You know, we've seen that in other sports when the kids really push it hard and reach a high level. Some go on to adult success; many do not. And so, you know, uh, it's you know, not surprising that we see the same thing in climbing is that some of the, you know, famous climbing kids uh, five or 10 years ago aren't even on the radar screen anymore. Mm. Um, but a few are, you know, and the yeah. ones that stay, the ones that stay there, like the Rabatu siblings, uh, you know, they're superstars now, you know, because they had kind of the support system. And I guess just were really well coached to, you know, uh, in ways that they would not burn out and that they would stay motivated and always find something new in climbing. And Brooke and Sean following their own career paths, in the case of the Rabatu uh, kids, uh, it's just amazing. You know, they're both, you know, climbing at the cutting edge, of course. Yeah. Uh, as 20 as somethings. And so, you know, they're examples of, you know, if you can stay motivated. Um, or in your case, stay motivated into your 40s, and in my case, stay motivated into my 60s. You know, there's a lot to be said for motivation as being the ultimate wild card because at some mm. point, a lot of climbers just kind of burn out. You know, whether it's the driving or the training uh, or you know the nagging injuries, you know that can accumulate and eventually, um, you know. Uh, compel someone to kind of give up on the sport, which is sad because climbing is such an amazing, you know, life sport. And so I don't, I don't wish the burnout on anybody, but, um, uh, you know, it, it's something to be dealt with. And I guess, you know, I, I just reflect in, you know, I've been climbing 47 years, you know, there, your, your motivation will wax and wane over the years, over the decades as different parts of your life come and go, you know, having kids or a job change or whatnot. Uh, but it's kind of cool to have this sport as kind of something that is always there. You know, that's how I've always viewed it. It's very just this consistent, you know, I'm a climber, you know, so much of my identity and what makes me tick and, uh, you know, wakes me up in the morning and hit the ground running is that I'm thinking about climbing. And uh, so, I, and I, I think, you know, seeing all those aspects and understanding the bigger picture, you know, is what can help people keep going and, you know, kind of, you know, change courses if they need to a little bit. I think it's nice that, you know, you went from intense sport climbing, uh, you know, a few seasons ago to now you're on a boulder and focus. And I will predict you'll circle back to sport climbing and, uh, you know, 
take it to the next level because mm. now you have bouldering prowess under your belt. And so yeah. hoping, hoping so. That's my that's yeah. my evil genius plan here. It's not yeah. not terribly complicated, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, hoping so. This is awesome. We're off to a good start. I know uh, I know we have uh, limited time today. So shall we jump into today's chosen topic? You bet. All right, let's do it. Today we're covering the top seven most common training mistakes. Um, I'm curious, first off, what made this topic feel interesting to you? Why did you want to talk about this of all the things that we could talk about? Is this something that um, you see a lot in you know, do you get a lot of feedback about this or what, what is it that, uh, that made this topic especially interesting? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I don't do a lot of personal training anymore. I, I do maybe a dozen consults a year, whereas I used to do a dozen in a month, uh, years ago. And so, you know, when I work with, um, a new client and a climber of any, um, you know, ability level, though, usually they're more advanced climbers that I work with. I try to give them, you know, new actionable information to help, you know, kind of mix things up and give them some um, things new that have potential to open up the next level, the next grade. But also, I'm keen on like kind of digging deep into what they're currently doing and trying to identify some of these things that are holding them back, you know, unknowingly, uh, the training mistakes. And, you know, a lot of them are things that I have you know, dealt with, you know, quicksand I've stepped into or got sucked into over the years, especially, you know, my early years, you know, back in the eighties, when I was really first into training, um, there was nothing out there in terms of training guidance. There were no experts, uh, you know, my generation, you know, Todd Skinner, Lynn Hill, you know, me and, you know, a dozen other climbers that were into training, like all we could look at was like what John Gill was doing, you know, the fate, the legendary boulderer who was uh, probably the first climber to really train uh, in climbing specific ways, you know, using gymnastics exercises. And so that was like all we had to go on and the rest we just kind of made up. Mm. Uh, and of course we did a lot of things wrong and, you know, over the decades, you know, we course corrected and figured things out. And uh, ironically, I see a lot of, climbers making the same mistakes that I made 40 years ago or that I saw a, a client make 20 years ago. And, Even advanced climbers. Uh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Advanced climbers for sure. And, you know, and, you know, I guess I don't want to sound critical here, but, you know, sometimes a climber uh, gets to a certain level, you know, double digit bouldering or 513, 514 red point climbing, and they start to get a little high in themselves and think they kind of know it all. And, uh, you know, they know exactly how to train. Um, and they don't, they've never figured it out because I haven't figured it out yet. Mm. You know, I mean, uh, we're, you know, this is still relatively new sport in the grand scheme of things. And the, the climbing research has come a long way and coaching has come a long way. And certainly with the Olympics, uh, you know, that's really mobilized, uh, at least in some countries, you know, the organ you know, organization of training, like the U.S. now has a good training center, finally, uh, in Salt Lake City that I think has really helped out a lot. And we've seen Team America perform so well the last few years in the World Cup as a result of that, you know, facility and coaching um, focus. Uh, so kudos to, to those guys and, you know, other countries as well, you know, what the you know Japanese team and coaches have done and the Slovenians and the Germans and the French. I mean, you know, just it's, 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 you know, there's a lot of progress being made. Uh, but 
we're still figuring it out, uh, the climbing science thing. And uh, so, you know, I guess just when I coach people or even just have casual conversation about training for climbing, I'm trying to give actionable information, but also trying to help people see what things they might be doing that aren't effective and worse yet, that might actually be hurting their performance. Mm. And uh, you do see a lot of the same things like overtraining, you know, we'll get into these seven items in a moment, but I mean, climbers are passionate people and uh, we tend to be more is better kind of people. And therefore, you know, that great hangboard protocol they're testing out, it's a lot of people quickly like double the volume mm. thinking that more is better. And mm. really, no, the, you know, the best is the right amount and not a bit more than that. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, so yeah, there, some of the things um, are uh, easy traps to fall into for a passionate climber and, uh, you know, things that, uh, I don't know, I guess maybe we might be blinded to, uh, for one reason or another, or, you know, copying after what the climber at the gym is doing. And, oh, if it's good for that person, they're strong. Maybe I should do it. You know, I see, I see D woods doing this at the gym. Well, I'm going to do it. Well, you're not D woods. Right. You know, so maybe that's not, uh, the appropriate thing for you. And so, yeah, that's where I think, um, while, you know, there's a lot of people do a great job self-coaching. Uh, I think they're, um, is always, uh, even for the best climbers, room to have some coaching overview, let's say. Mm. Um, and even with my sons, you know, they're both out of the house and are self-directed when it goes, you know, they're 20 and 22, um, you know, and on their own uh, and very self-directed in their climbing. But, um, you know, I'll get an email from Cameron and say, hey, dad, I'd like your opinion on this. You know, what should I be doing the next month before this trip? And so that's cool. You know, he's still checking back and, you know, valuing uh, the knowledge his old man's accumulated over <laughs> the years. And uh, um, and my younger son, too, you know, who's really into, you know, both training and nutrition. And we have excellent conversations about it because, you know, nutrition is a big part of getting the most out of your training and performing your best. Mm. And uh, and after all, I own a climbing nutrition company. And so it's something I'm very knowledgeable about as well. And uh, you know, so I can uh, hopefully give some honest, uh, useful advice on, you know, all those topics, you know, training, nutrition, recovery, um, and game planning ahead of a trip, which is, you know, important if you're a climber, you know, training with a goal in mind, a route or a trip in mind. So, yeah, so most of these climbing uh, uh, mistakes that we're going to talk here about are things that I would like recommend, you know, the average listener who is self-coaching. Um, and is perhaps doing a terrific job at it, still needs to keep an eye out for some of these traps. And I'm going to bet that the average listener, uh, at least one or two of these seven items, if they're honest with themselves, they'll say, yeah, you know, that's me. Mm. I, I make that mistake sometimes. And so becoming self-aware is, you know, the first step to making that little course correction that could be a real difference maker on down the road. And, you know, so the, the more... Um, you know, uh, precise your and individualized your training program can become, and the more you can, uh, you know, eliminate or avoid these little road traps along the way, it's like compound interest. You know, the longer you can keep that going, uh, you'll get better results. And you know, you step into one or two of these traps, you get injured, uh, 
which can be a setback for a lot of climbers, uh, or it takes you out of training and climbing for a few months or longer, you know, that's the opposite of compounding interest. That's taking you backwards mm. in, in a rapid fashion. You're losing, you know, you're not holding steady, you're going backwards. And um, so, you know, of course, the goal is always to kind of avoid, you know, going in that direction. Yeah. Well, awesome. I'm excited. It sounds like this is going to be a super helpful one for just about everybody listening. Yeah. So maybe we can just spend a, a few minutes on each of these seven points. And you know, I, I would be, you know, I'd welcome you to add in your thoughts on each of them uh, or if you have any um, ideas, but I can just blast through these seven common training mistakes. And again, I ask the listeners just to think about them and, you know, is that, does that sound familiar? Does that sound like anybody that you see in the mirror. Yeah, sounds good. Let's let's take it away. And I will put the list in the show notes for people at thenuggetclimbing.com if you want to reference it while you're listening or after. But cool. yeah, take it away. Number one. Okay. So number one, uh, I think this is just a good overview is, um, you know, going to the gym for a workout and not having some plan of action. I like to say an intelligent plan of action uh, because you might have, uh, you know, images of sending a hard boulder or clipping some chains and getting pumped, but that's kind of vague and not specific. And so I think um, if you really want to make a workout count uh, is arrive with a game plan. And, you know, in the context of like a winter training block where you, you know, are mapping out a big 10 week plan, that would be ideal. And then you can look at each week of that 10 week period and kind of know what the goal was for each of those days. Uh, You know, what, your training in terms of body parts or energy systems or what climbing discipline you're training. Uh, but, you know, thinking that most climbers, especially if you're into outdoor climbing and we're heading into a kind of summer season where the average climber climbs a lot or travels, you're probably not in a training block, but you're still going to the gym, you know, trying to, if not level up, just trying to fine tune or, you know, maintain strength, power for your trip. And so, having a plan for that workout. If you just show up and make it up as you go, it's not likely you're going to, I mean, you might stumble into having a pretty effective workout and you'll certainly likely leave the jump, the gym tired and fatigued and pumped, but that doesn't equal a good workout. A good workout means you did the, the right things, you know, that you needed for that day. And, uh, you know, so I guess I would just tell people when you show up at the gym, not that you need to have a written out workout, though I I kind of do. I every every workout I kind of have a game plan and kind of have an order of things that I'm gonna proceed through in terms of you know my warming up and my actual climbing activities and then my actual training activities and what body parts and exercises and weights. I mean, I, I'm kind of you know like to follow a pretty tight schedule like that. Uh you don't need to go that deep, but to at least have in your mind, okay, this workout is about, you know, limit bouldering or, you know, another day you're showing up and saying, no, it's not about limit bouldering. It's going to be about doing a bunch of, you know, uh, mid difficulty boulders with a focus on like more power endurance, kind of like bouldering four by fours, whether you do it on a spray wall or a system wall. Uh, You know, if you go in there, and do a lot of everything. You know, I often call this the shotgun approach. Just go in there and do a lot of everything. You'll create a lot of fatigue, but it's not an effective, you know, method of training. So number one, 
have a game plan. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Um, one thing that I typically do that might be helpful for people, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of good training apps out there. I, I personally still keep it kind of old school and will often just have a note on my phone um, that I'm going off of. And I'll have like different types of workouts. Maybe I have, you know, training session A, B, C, and D that I'm hitting on each week. So if it's day for training A, I'll just copy and paste my A note from last oh. week and be referencing that as I go through this week's workout. So I know I know what weights I hit if I'm in the weight room. I know what things I hit on the hangboard. I know how many V grades I tried on the moon board, you know, the previous week, mm-hmm. whatever it is. And I'm just that, I mean, the, it, it's great to have a plan because it, it makes your day more effective. But going back to what you mentioned about compound interest, that's what really allows you to incrementally increase the, you know, intensity or the, you know, duration or the density or whatever it is that you're trying to improve. You know, you can't move those things towards, Mm. towards anything if you don't know where you were last time and and where you're going. So, um, you bet. And I, I I like that, you know, you have this written record in your, uh, iPhone notes. And for me, I'm old school, really old school. I still use a, you know, a, (laughs) <laughs> it is it is funny that I called a note on my phone old school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, oh, yeah, physical paper, I, huh? <laughs> Pencils. Those yeah, work too. Yeah. Does that exist? It's That's like awesome. LP records, you know, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I still keep a written record and I have, you know, stacks of these things going back, you know, many, many years. And uh, But I, I, I like the paper because it's easy for me to flip back to a week ago or a month ago or a year ago and, you know, see what I was doing. And, you know, if I fall into a funk, you know, where I'm kind of going backwards, let's say, um, you have a sense I'm overtraining, I can flip back and see what led up to that, you know, and I can, uh, you know... For me, the paper is just how my brain is wired and I can kind of suss out what, you know, maybe led up to a, a period of overtraining and just like little subjective notes that up like yesterday's workout, I kind of wrote down that I feel like I'm 95%. I do that every day. I just kind of assign like some days I warm up. I, I do auto regulation. I do the exact same warm up every workout. Um, and so at the end of that warm up, I have a really good idea where I'm at. And so I kind of like, if I'm, if I'm like spot on, like hundred percent there, I write down, I'm hundred percent. And, you know, yesterday I wrote down 95% and, uh, cause I was like missing you know, a little bit of finger force, uh, but otherwise felt good. And, you know, so that, those types of notes, whether you keep them on your phone, um, on a spreadsheet, in my case, in a tablet, I think that's, you know, powerful stuff. Uh, especially when you can reflect back on it uh, in the long term. So, you know, again, if you can start off with a plan and then, you know, record how it works out for you, then you can then do this final assessment of like, how did the plan work out? How did I follow, you know, through with the plan? And as we're going to see with some of these other common training mistakes that we'll talk about in a minute, um, it is easy to still, you know, go off, road, <laughs> go sure. off the rails, even yeah. with a bit of a plan. And we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you'll know that it's not just about climbing. It's also about getting to know people and learning from them. And it's about getting to know ourselves because until we do that, it's really hard to know how to get where we want to go in life or romantic relationships or climbing 
or anything. Therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness and understanding because sometimes we don't know what we want or why we react the way that we do until we talk through things. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. I go to therapy twice a month and it's awesome. It's just nice to talk to somebody whose job it is to really listen no matter what you're dealing with. If you're having a hard time or just want a professional to help you become the best version of yourself, then therapy is going to be awesome for you. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. That's what I use. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge and without any awkwardness. It's super easy. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com nugget today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash nugget. This episode is brought to you by Wonderful Pistachios. You guys know that I mostly eat whole foods when it comes to my nutrition, and I'm always looking for good crag snacks to bring to the boulders or to the cliff, something with some substance to keep me fueled for hours and hours of climbing. Pistachios are known for their protein power, fiber, and better for you unsaturated fats for a combination that may help keep you feeling fuller longer than other snacks. And they're super convenient and so tasty. Their no-shell flavors include the classic roasted and salted, that's my favorite, super basic, I know. Salt and pepper, honey roasted, chili roasted, and smoky barbecue. They are all so good, you literally can't go wrong. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of sizes, perfect for enjoying by yourself or with family or friends, or taking them with you on your climbing adventures. So whether you're hitting the gym after work or heading out on a weekend adventure, Fuel up with a healthy and tasty snack. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more about how these little green wonders can power up your day. Again, that's wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. And now back to the show. Quick, quick question. Actually, this might not be a quick question. This could be a whole tangent. So <laughs> let, let me know if we should save it. But there are, um, no, there are no quick questions when you ask them to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but that kind of begs the question. So if you have this way of self-assessment, I think that's a great idea. I do a similar thing. Um, when do you know, or what, what advice would you have for people as far as when to deviate from the plan? So let's say my intention for tomorrow is to hangboard mm -hmm. and do some hard bouldering. Um, and then I do my warm up, and maybe I use the tin deck a little bit or something, and I'm clearly really fatigued. Maybe I'm at seventy yeah. percent or sixty percent or something. Yeah, um, that's you know that's, that's pretty me. that's pretty cut and dry. But how do yep. how do you know? Like when do you when do you um, when do you pivot versus sticking to the plan? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, it's a subjective call. I think it's very experiential. Uh, you know, for me, uh, I, you know, like you, uh, I do the same warm up. You know, this kind of auto, uh, this warm up that you know leaves me warmed and primed, and at a point where I can then, you know, have some actual data how I felt on certain hangs and exercises. Um, I, I, you know, I have that data, but then I have this core subjective feel of like either being on or off, or you know, a degree of fatigue. 
Uh, and so kind of between the data from the warm-up uh, sequence and um, then that kind of subjective feel, uh, I make a judgment. And so like if there's a day where, you know, I am 70%, like you mentioned, then I'm definitely, you know, if I had a max weight hangboard program or limit bouldering workout scheduled, I'm not doing it. If I, if I conclude I'm only 70%, what would be the point? I'd be better off kind of doing something that's more recovery oriented, submaximal, uh, you know, you know, or perhaps if you discover you're only 50%, you might be better off just at the end of your warm up calling it a day, mm. you know? And so that takes a lot of maturity and, you know, discipline to do that. And it's something that I think kind of climbers over, you know, with many years of experience come to kind of intuit. Uh, I think the pro climbers definitely are really dialed into this and they have grown beyond the more is better mentality. And they know that uh, the smart thing is to not train fatigued, certainly not train strength and power fatigued. Uh, and so, um, you know, but yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to give a specific answer to, you know, at what point do I change plans in a workout? Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I, at my age, uh, and, or for anybody, regardless of age, if you are injury prone, I think you have to, you know, pull the plug sooner rather than later on a workout or a session. You know, if you're, if you're prone to injury, you're prone to overtraining or you're old, <laughs> you know, uh, oftentimes less is more. And, and so, you know, if you're young and strong and not injured, uh, you know, sometimes you can, you know, forge ahead on those days where you're only 70 or 80%. And so again, it's hard to give a precise answer to. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's something where keeping some sorts of notes about how you feel over, you know, a whole training season tells you a lot. And then next time you can carry some of those yeah. lessons with you. Yeah, you bet. And that actually segues nicely into uh, the second common training mistake. And that is that not every workout should be a competition with yourself. You know, Stephen, I think today more than ever, you know, with these uh, system walls, with the iPhone integration and your ability to like have thousands of boulder problems at your fingertips, it's really, I think, easy for people to show up at the gym and just every day turns into a competition with themselves. You know, how many, you know, V8s can I do or how, you know, can I do a PR boulder today? And uh, or with the strength, you know, measuring devices you know, uh, that are out there. And there's several, you mentioned one, uh, and there's uh, several others that make it really easy to measure finger force and, you know, do testing. And if every session devolves into strength testing or a bouldering competition or a red point competition, well, then that's not effective training either. And so that's why I would consider that a trap. Certainly in the context of a week or a month or a training block, there are days where you should be doing testing and there's days where you should be doing limit bouldering. Uh, but you know, if you're showing up at the gym and like every day you're, you know, going through your boulders on your phone and saying, you know, what kilter B10 can I do today? If that is every workout, it's not the most effective program. And, uh, so that's a trap. I think that, um, my generation, that wasn't even an option, you know, hmm. uh, just it, there wasn't, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, unless you're training at the crags, that wasn't an option. But now you can go to the gyms and easily, 
you know, just get stuck in the mire of testing and competing with yourself. Mm. And so I think that's something that people should um, do on occasion, you know, but it shouldn't be every session. Right. I mean, it, it kind of implies, like, we all know that you can't perform well and be investing in yourself for the long term in your training at the same time. And to compete with yourself implies performing. You're going to the gym and you're performing rather than just putting the work in. You bet. And I'll tell you, I love to use the analogies of athletes in other sports because, you know, I've been around other sports. I've been around high end athletes in a variety of sports. And, you know, if you talk to a world class sprinter, say someone whose specialty is a hundred meter dash, you'd be surprised how rarely they run an all out hundred meter dash. It's <laughs> remarkably rare. Their workouts are spent doing a lot of stuff that's not the hundred meter dash. You know, they're doing, they're practicing their starts, how fast out of the blocks, the first 20 meters. Then they're doing some, you know, cardiovascular training that is submaximal and actually a little longer. Now, sprinters don't do a lot of mileage, but they do some type of base aerobic training and, you know, interval work. And, you know, on rare occasions, there's a day that they're going to test themselves, uh, you know, on the 100 meter dash and do that all out. And, but yet climbers, it's like, yeah, I know we go to the crags and, you know, it's, Almost always like, I mean, I shouldn't say this because a lot of people climb for fun, you know, and recreate climbing and they're not pushing themselves. And that's terrific. I love doing that. But the, the climbers that I'm around a lot, I guess that's how I should put it, uh, you know, just have this desire to, you know, climb high, high grades, hard numbers. Uh, and, you know, and so it is almost like they show up at the boulders or crags and it's like they're that sprinter going for their record hundred meter dash every time. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, that, that it just can't be every session, nor should it be every day at the boulders. I mean, some it's, it's okay to go to the boulders and do some easy routes some days mm. and just have fun. Yeah. And same thing with sport climbing or trad climbing or multi-pitch climbing is it's really important. I think mentally and physically to have some easy days like that, where you're just climbing for fun um, and not, you know, passing on the gas pedal to the floor every single time. That's hard on your nervous system, you know, your body, your brain, connective mm. tissues. And uh, yeah, so I mean, there's there's a lot of reasons that every workout or every session shouldn't be limit. You know, it's funny. I've been climbing for like 15 years and um, have obviously been thinking about all this training stuff a lot. And I have to remind myself all the time, like almost constantly, that if I have a bad day, that's normal, you know? <laughs> like the the place yeah. where my brain immediately goes, like this happened literally two days ago. I had a bad day, a bad day, whatever, you know, whatever. Just one day where I didn't send something hard that was new and exciting uh, here in Magicwood. And my brain immediately is like going into problem-solving mode, you know? Like, what did I do wrong? Like, you know, what, what, what did I did I not train enough? Did I train too much? Blah, blah, blah. It's like, man, just let those days happen. They, they happen. It's yeah. okay. You know, just when they happen, just roll with it. Yeah. And like you said, pivot, yeah. do some easier, yeah. easier stuff. But yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wise, wise words there, grasshopper. <laughs> I mean, that is definitely something that I think takes decades for a lot of climbers to realize, you know, I, it, you know, you know, again, to the passionate climber who really wants to push hard and is very goal oriented, you have a bad day at the crags and you can, you know, 
have the self-talk, you know, I suck, mm. you know, uh, what a waste of a day. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, have that, uh, but you need to grow beyond that and see the bigger picture. And yeah, some off days. I mean, that, you know, the gold medalist in the 100 meter dash doesn't, you know, run a PR every time he runs the race. He might have a PR once every few years if he's lucky, um, <laughs> but that doesn't stop him from not racing. And so, hmm. yeah, you have to see the bigger picture and realize that, you know, the higher you are in the scale, those those breakthroughs are fewer and farther between and take more and more effort uh, to realize. And, you know, so there's going to be these down days or, and, and I think just the paradigm shift is, you know, don't consider them down days, but just kind of like foundational days mm. or base building days, or if you need to say character building days, you know, if you have <laughs> a bad day, you know, Hey, this is kind of a character building day for me. Um, and just kind of, you know, find the silver lining in those off days. And, uh, and so, yeah, you know, circling back to training, I, I think out of a training week, you know, maybe only one or two days a week, should you really arrive at the gym and say, you know, I want to push hard, you know, to my max, whether it's on a rope or on a boulder or on a hangboard, only one or two days a week. And, and the other one or two or three days a week, should be something less than that. But again, intelligently designed. And, and we can't get into that here because everybody's different. What is appropriate for them? If you're a, a route climber or a boulder, those days would look very different. Um, but you know, you know, it's just it's the old, you know, hundred-year-old concept of periodization. You know, not every session can be a hundred percent. you know, you need some days that are 80% and even you know, a day here or there that's 50% that you might call kind of a recovery day. Mm. Um, and so whether you're at the gym or at the crag or the boulders, you know, kind of having that same thought process, you know, to kind of periodize, uh, you know, in Switzerland, you might have two days a week that you're going for the projects and pushing hard. Maybe there's a day that you go a little easier that you just go do some classic V5s. There's probably some brilliant routes to be done there in the you know, V3, V5, V7 range, right? Oh, for so sure. Yeah. Do, do a, an easy day where you just accumulate some of those. It could be some, could be one of your funner days. Mm -hmm. So yeah, totally. Yeah. Awesome. Number three. Okay. Well, let's move on to that. Yeah. Let's move on to number three. And again, these are all, you know, kind of dovetail and fit together, uh, but in, you know, slightly different ways. And so um, number two is about not every workout being a competition with yourself. And then number three, another way that climbers can overdo it is by cramming their training. And usually um, the, the way this happens is cramming, like for a weekend warrior like myself, you know, that Thursday workout, thinking there's something more you can do in that Thursday workout that's going to make you send your project or climb better on Saturday. <laughs> um, and really the truth is, if there's one thing you can do on that Thursday to help you climb better Saturday, it would probably be just to take a rest day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, but not, not many climbers are, you know, assuming Friday's a rest day, not many climbers want to take two complete rest days. Uh, but that doesn't mean it wouldn't be the most effective thing to do. Uh, now, I often will do a light session on a Thursday, especially if I can do it early in the day uh, and then get recovery started and then really be all about sleep and nutrition leading up to that weekend trip. 
Uh, but just be careful if you're a weekend warrior, uh, you know, that Thursday, if you try to cram your training, like you're studying for an exam in college at midnight the night before, it, the outcome's usually not very good. Hmm. And in, in the case of cramming your training, you're just going to arrive at the crag fatigued and likely less than 100%. And, you know, don't be surprised if you feel like shit on your project or on your boulders. Uh, so, uh, you know, be careful on that. And in the context of preparing for a longer trip, like if you're doing a training block, if you have a five or 10 week, you know, runway up to a longer road trip, um, kind of the opposite of cramming is tapering. And so, it, you know, the tapering is a, a powerful proven concept when you're involved in a longer training, uh, you know, schedule and, you know, whether it's, you know, a month or two or three months, that last seven to 10 days leading up to your road trip, you know, you want to keep intensity high. So you want to you know keep your power up, but you really want to markedly reduce the volume of your training that last seven to 10 days. And, you know, elite athletes to pretty much every serious competitive sport, you know, whether it's leading up to a world cup or leading up to the Olympics or, you know, some important event, uh, they are coached uh, to have some form of performance taper. And so uh, that's, kind of, again, the opposite of cramming. So that's a trap to avoid. Mm. Yeah. Love it. I don't think I have anything to add to that one. Okay. Let's, let's move on to, yeah, let's move on to number four. And um, this is one that I think every listener, unfortunately is going to deal with at some point or another is injury. And the, the, the trap is engaging in inappropriate training while injured. Mm. Now there are a million, a myriad of aches and pains and tweaks and tears that climbers can succumb to, you know, as we know, Stephen climbing is hard on the body. And, uh, you know, if you climb long enough, you know, it's not, if it's when you're going to get a tweak or injury of some sort, uh, you know, some people are more injury prone than others for a variety of reasons. I mean, there's genetic factors, there's lifestyle factors, there's, you know, uh, Previous injury history from other sports is a factor. I mean, there's there's many things. Um, but the one thing that we should all pay attention to is th those aches and pains and what they mean. And it's not always a simple diagnosis. Uh, certainly, if you have an ache or pain that is getting worse, you should see a doctor uh, and get to the bottom of it because it might not be what you think it is. It might not be what your friend or coach is telling you it is. Uh, you know, some injuries are pretty straightforward and others, uh, you know, like elbow pain, there can be multiple causes of elbow pain. It's not necessarily climber's elbow or mm. tennis elbow. There can be other things going on there. So any injury that's getting worse, see a doctor. Now, if you continue to train through an injury, it's likely to, you know, likely to get worse. So don't be surprised if you end up at a doctor. Whereas uh, if you want to avoid this trap, when you feel those aches and pains and tweaks is be self-aware of it, you know, question what is going on, uh, react, uh, you know, be proactive uh, sooner than later. Uh, oftentimes, you know, you experience a little pain at the gym or the crag and you just dial it back for one or two sessions and the problem corrects itself. Uh, you know, you reduce intensity, you reduce volume, you get a little more sleep, you eat more than you maybe have been eating, drink more than you have been drinking. Um, you know, and a little course correction early on 
can make a world of difference and you can just totally, you know, you know, uh, proceed back to your normal uninjured self very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. But if you fall into this trap and you try to train through the injury and climb through the injury, whether it's a finger tweak, an elbow, a shoulder, whatnot, um, if you just forge ahead blindly, uh, stick your head in the sand, let's say, and uh, hope that it goes away, well, maybe you'll get lucky and it will, but more likely than not, it will just get worse and longer lasting and yeah. eventually could lead to a layoff. And, you know, and then we get back to what we talked about earlier, that loss of that compounding interest, because, you know, worse than training ineffectively is being out of the game completely, mm-hmm. you know, where you're going backwards, uh, which is what happens. So I'm not saying, you know, you have an injury you should stop training. I, I think, you know, that's very old school and it's been disproven that rest is the um, optimal thing for injuries. Um, you know, I mean, there, there are certainly some injuries that would demand total rest for a period of time. You know, you break your leg uh, or, you know, I mean, you, wh- whatever, but um, some injuries you can train around, you know, like if you, if you have a twisted ankle, you could still do some hangboard training, obviously. Uh, but you probably wouldn't want to be running or bouldering uh, and jumping off of boulders with an injured ankle. Or if you have a, a finger pulley tweak, uh, you know, you could do some, you should do some rehab. You might want to do some blood flow restriction training, things that, you know, training modalities that have been proven to expedite healing. Uh, but if you have that finger pulley tweak, the last thing you'd want to be doing is min edge training or max weight training or limit bouldering you know, that would be just likely making matters worse. So don't quit training because you're injured. Just modify your training and train in appropriate ways. Right. Uh, And so again, this kind of speaks to having self-awareness and maturity and discipline. And, um, you know, all of these seven mistakes I have made. So I'm, you know, I humbly admit that, you know, I've been a uh, a maker of these mistakes in my training past of 47 years, mm-hmm. uh, especially my early days where I was, you know, not very knowledgeable and just super passionate. Um, today, I'm older and wiser and more knowledgeable. And so I can uh, be a little more prudent in my actions. And so hopefully through listening to these podcasts and talking to veteran climbers and coaches, um, you know, people listening can uh, avoid the muck and mire of these various training mistakes. And, uh, you know, dear listener, when you feel that next pain or tweak, don't stop training, just kind of, uh, you know, become more self-aware and ask yourself, what is the appropriate course of action Mm. to help you get through it more quickly? Yeah, that's, that's kind of what I was just thinking. Like this, this item number four popped out at me because it's definitely the one that I've, I mean, I've made, other all these other mistakes as well but um this one there's like two distinct setbacks in my climbing probably my biggest two setbacks in my climbing that were because of this like i had a minor injury that could have been you know addressed and i could have been back in action in a few weeks and i made it way worse and then it dragged out and became this multi-month thing where i had to take a lot of time off um the first one was my first serious pulley injury um, I made it way worse before I actually took proper rest and then started rehabbing it correctly. Um, and then the other one was elbow tendonitis that I tried to push through 
um, instead of, you know, taking it seriously and, and, and trying to rehab it. And I think this, the commonality in both of those instances is my head was in that stage of denial. Um, oh, there's the bell telling me that it's 6 p.m. Do you hear that? <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, I was in denial, you know, like it's that process, that grieving process. Like you don't yeah. want to be injured. You're in both of those instances, I was feeling stronger and stronger and I was kind of on fire and my training was going well and I was climbing well and I was in denial about being injured and my head was in this space of trying to get away with things, you know, like what can I get away with? I have this finger injury. I kind of deeply know that it's a problem, like deep down, some part of me knows, but I think I can get a, get away with doing some hangboarding in a three-finger drag. You know, I can do some max hangs in a three-finger drag because it doesn't hurt that bad. So, you know, that'll be fine. And then in hindsight, it's like, no, you shouldn't be doing any max finger training of any type if you have a pulley injury. That's really stupid. Um, or I, I think I can squeak out this send and get away with it, you know, without making the injury too much worse. Um, with the elbows, I think I can finish out this sport climbing season and tick a couple more things um, and get away with that without making the injury too much worse. But I was just digging the hole deeper and deeper in both of those instances. And I think yeah. part of me knew it. I didn't have the maturity to, you know, to listen to that at the time, but I think part of me knew it. So I'm hoping that next time I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll be a little smarter. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, Again, everybody's got to make that mistake, you know, I think a couple of times and then eventually, you know, see the light. Uh, yeah. And it's very situational. I mean, there are situations like, say you're on a bouldering trip to Switzerland and you start to feel a little bit of a tweak in your finger. Um, not a horrible tweak, but a little bit of a tweak. Well, you know, do you end the trip? No, probably not. You know, you're going to try to adjust things a little bit. For right. one, you know, you're going to, you know, tape tightly with some loical tape, maybe get a pulley splint. Uh, you're going to maybe seek out problems that aren't going to be as crimpy on that that finger that's becoming painful. Yeah. Uh, it can have more of those easy days and fewer of those, you know, limit days. And, uh, you know, so it's situational. Whereas, you know, you feel that same tweak and you're at home on a training block. It's just so easy to adjust your training for a, a week or two and maybe you'll course correct. And so again, it's, it is situational what the correct call is. I think just enthusiastic climbers instinctively, it's like, you know, we push through pain. We embrace pain. Uh, there's so much pain involved in climbing hard, you know, the pumped forearms and just the, you know, you know, uh, you know, the emotional, you know, raw, you know, pain of falling, going to the chains or, you know, whatever. Uh, it's like we are, I mean, I guess climbers are masochists, right? Aren't we? <laughs> yeah, I think like, so. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so... You know, so to have like a little painful finger and call it a day, you know, that's like, just goes against our makeup as climbers, but yet it is often the right thing to do mm. when you feel that, that, you know, uh, that tweak come about. Now, if you were bouldering and you heard a loud pop, like a gun going off, then you might want to reevaluate your trip. Right. You know, so again, it, there's shades of gray here when we're talking, you know, uh, how you should proceed with injuries and, um, uh, you know, again, a, a good doctor or even, you know, today there's an increasing number of PTs and nurses that can do dynamic ultrasounds of a finger, let's say, 
and very quickly get to kind of the bottom line. Is it like just a very minor tweak that doesn't really show up? Or you know, do we see some bowstringing, let's say, which reveals a more significant injury that you really need to alter your course dramatically? Uh, and so, again, I guess kind of the bottom line is to be more self-aware of aches and pains, and uh, you know what they might mean, and be quick to uh, adjust your training uh, in appropriate uh, ways to help you, you know, course correct the situation sooner rather than later. Yeah. You know, this is going to sound painfully obvious, but a big lesson for me, whenever I have a little tweak, it's because I, I don't know, I have this weird tendency to like throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know, <laughs> I'm like, no, I have this plan. I was going to finish my six weeks of half crimp, max hang, finger training, and now I have a finger tweak, but I'm just going to try to push through because I'm almost at the end, you know? Um, and I, I feel like it's this, I'm in this situation where I either have to just completely stop training at all and, um, and go into rehab or push through and stick to the plan that I'd intended. A huge lesson has just been just avoid the things that irritate whatever the tweak is, you know, it's, it, it can be that simple. I found mm. much better results from just pivoting, um, just avoid the thing that's actively irritating the tweak and it won't become a serious injury. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know why that felt like such a revelation, but yeah, <laughs> but it, yeah. It did. Well, no, you're right. And, 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 you know, some of these common injuries, there are very, um, you know, quick, effective countermeasures that can be taken. Uh, you know, like I frequently, uh, you know, run into climbers at the crag and like, Eric, you know, I just in the last month developed this uh, elbow pain at the bony knob on the inside of my elbow. You know, that's the medial apocondyl. Um, and it really hurts when I do pull-ups. And I'm like, my answer to them is stop doing pull-ups. You know? <laughs> exactly. And then I'm like, are, are you doing weighted pull-ups? They say, yes. Are you doing warm pull-ups? They say, yes. And I'm like, stop doing pull-ups. You know, so that one thing uh, is likely what is provoking it. And now that in itself isn't the long-term solution. That's the immediate response. Uh, but the long-term solution would involve a number of other things, you know, some stretching and some rehab protocols and some other ways to train, you know, with isometrics uh, in a, you know, supinated position or a neutral position and things that can help spur on healing. But step number one is stop doing the thing that's provoking it. Uh, and, you know, that's like, you know, my head hurts because I'm hitting myself <laughs> with a hammer on the head. Well, stop hitting yourself with a hammer on the head. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, you know, so yeah, sometimes the obvious answer is, is easy to overlook. And so, um, yeah, I guess maybe we've belabored the point here, but, you know, injuries are just so much a part of the climbing game. And uh, it's one of the reasons I started Fizzy Vantage Nutrition, Stephen, is I, you know, after all these years as a climber and a coach, uh, it took me a long time to realize the role that proper nutrition plays in recovery uh, and in making an injury resistant body. And, uh, you know, not that nutrition is everything. It's just, it's one important piece of the puzzle that a lot of climbers are overlooking. You know, climbers that are walking around, you know, dehydrated because they don't drink enough water or they drink a lot of alcohol um, and they eat too much fast food and packaged food and, you know, they don't get enough protein in their diet and they, you know, fast intermittently uh, 
for whatever reason, uh, even though they're training around the clock mm. really hard and they shouldn't be fasting in that situation. I mean, there's just so many nutritional mistakes. We could do a whole podcast on that, you know, seven common nutritional mistakes of climbers, you know, maybe that should be the next one, <laughs> uh, you know, and so uh, I, you know, um, found, you know, these evidence-based um, things that could be done, you know, to help uh, aid climbers, both in injury resistance and recovery and training gains. Uh, and based on that, you know, many years of study uh, is what led to the founding of PhysiAdvantage Nutrition. And, uh, you know, so yeah, you know, nutrition plays a role in um, performance, in injury resistance, in injury recovery, um, in workout recovery. I mean, it's just, you just, you, if you're having a, any kind of a discussion about climate performance, you have to talk about nutrition at least a little bit. And we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Rumple. My Rumple blanket is literally one of my favorite things I own. It's so cozy. It's like having the coziness of a puffy sleeping bag with you wherever you go. Rumple's original puffy blanket is made of the same materials as your favorite outdoor gear. It pairs durable 20D ripstop nylon with a durable water repellent finish, so it's water resistant, stain resistant, and odor resistant. This thing is the best. And as I said, it's the coziest blanket you could ask for. Perfect for staying warm at the boulders or at the crag. Great for camping. I have one in my van and use it all the time. And just great to have around the house. It'll be your new favorite blanket, full stop, whatever the circumstances. And Rumpel also makes many other amazing products. The Nanoloft Travel Blanket is the size of a Nalgene when packed down and can travel with you wherever you go. And the Everywhere Mat and the Everywhere Towel are two products that I also use and love. As someone who lives in a van, those two products come in handy all the time. Go to rumple.com slash nugget and use code nugget at checkout to get 10% off your order of amazing blankets and gear. That's 10% off your first order when you go to rumple.com slash nugget and use code nugget at checkout. And now back to the show. Okay, well, let's move on to um, the fifth mistake. Um, and this is one I think we've all talked about and we've all probably fallen victim to, and that is following somebody else's training plan. Whether it's, you know, your buddy at the gym buys a workout off the internet um, and you, you know, follow it, or, or maybe you simply just model what you see people doing at the gym. Or today with social media, you know, it's hard to go on Instagram and not see people exercising. Uh, uh, and if they're climbing exercises, it probably involves either campusing, uh, or, um, you know, kilter boarding or something impressive looking and something very, very powerful. Uh, and you know, what you see might be captivating, uh, and make you want to model it at the gym, but is it appropriate to you? You know, and I always go back to, you know, in my very first training book, I talked about the snowflake principle, you know, no two climbers are the same, just as no two snowflakes are the same. And therefore, for many reasons, uh, your training program needs to be unique and different from other people. And so while you and, you know, the next climber might be at a similar grade of climbing or have a similar experience level, um, there are still a lot of differences, you know, 
your age, your climbing experience, your training history, your injury history, you know, what time you have available out, out of your week or day to train, um, your climbing goals. You know, we mentioned diet and nutrition and definitely, you know, we have to say genetics that plays a role in training adaptations and just what is appropriate for a, a, an individual to do. Uh, and so for all of those reasons, you know, ultimately every climber, every listener to this podcast should be on a mission to find what is their ideal training program. Uh, and again, that's going to change over the seasons and over the years as your goals change, as your body changes, as your ability changes, as injuries come and go. I mean, it, you know, the best program for you is a moving target. Uh, but on any given day, you have to try to hit the bullseye of that target for you. Um, and it's, it, it's you know, going to be likely different from what you see others doing. So um, as tempting as it can be, uh, I encourage people to, you know, kind of eschew the whole concept of copying training. I, I think it's good. There are certain things that climbers can model very effectively. Movement is a good one. Tactics is a great one. Uh, you know, you see how a pro climber moves and rests and attacks around and works around. Those are great things to model. Uh, but uh, the training program is not the thing that you mm. want to model a, a, an elite climber because you know what uh, you know that V15 um, boulder is doing is likely going to break uh, a lesser climber. Mm. I'm curious about this because you know obviously a big part of this podcast is me interviewing high level performers and hearing what they do. Um, mm. Is it ever appropriate to? draw inspiration from someone's approach so long as you tailor it to yourself. Like for instance, um, I mean, this has happened a bunch of times for me, but you know, listening or, or interviewing uh, John Glassberg a couple years ago and hearing about his training block, got a number of my listeners fired up, got me fired up to try a similar way of training. It's very scalable, you know? So instead of trying to do 10, I don't know, V11s on the moon board in a session. I might be doing 10 V6s on a moon board in a session. 10 V6s on the moon board in, on the moon board in a session is like totally reasonable for me um, so long as I'm thoughtful about how I'm scaling this stuff mm. to my ability. Is that okay? Is it okay to take like someone's framework and try to adapt it to yourself? Yeah, how would you think about that? Yeah, no, I think 100% yes. I mean, a lot of what we do in training for climbing is scalable. Um, you know, the way uh, John Glassberg was training, you could adjust the, the grade, the, you know, the magnitude of the exercise, probably the volume, depending, you know, uh, you know who you're copying after, uh, you know, like elite level sport climbers do massive volume, you know, or, you know, big wall climbers, mountaineers do massive volume. I mean, you couldn't, you know, few climbers could hang with Alex Honnold for a day of high volume climbing. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Because he's going to go through 50 pitches in a day, you know? And I, I mean, I might hang with him for 10 pitches, but like on pitch 11, I'm gone, you know? And, uh, uh, you know, or Alex Megos, you know, same thing. If you're sport climbing with him, well, you know, he's going to warm up on a 13 and then do a 14, and then he's going to get onto his project for the day or something like that. Um, and so obviously you can't copycat that, 
But what you can do is if his project for the day is 15B, you can observe and say, okay, well, he did a, you know, he did a 13B and then he did a 14B and then he's getting on his 15B. So for me, what would that be if you scale? It? Well, if my project is 13B, well, that, you know, the scale would be, then I warm up on an 11B and a 12B and then I get on my project 13B. And mm. so, you know, we can model in that way and scale. But what I'm saying is, specific exercises, mm. you know, like you see someone doing a one five nine on a campus board on Instagram um, that if, if you just go and, you know, let's say you can, you know, you, you can't, you're not capable. You don't have the strength and power to do that, but you keep trying. You're going to be training in very dangerous ways that could injure your shoulder, you know? Um, and uh, you know, campusing is very technique intensive. Uh, to do it safely and to do it well. Uh, and so, you know, trying to do something that you're just not ready for, it, it could be injurious. Uh, oftentimes in training, it's not that uh, severe of a uh, consequence, but, you know, just going to the gym and, you know, if there's a, a route climber who can do, you know, 15 pitches in a day, you know, maybe for you, the right number is 12, you know, um, you know, clipping the chains on 12 routes instead of 15. Uh, and so it's got to be based on what you're capable of, what your training history is. Uh, it's, you know, the goal is not obviously to consume the maximum dose of training in any given session, but the, you know, the optimal, or, you know, some people might even say the, the minimum effective dose. Uh, though for many climbers, the minimum effective dose isn't satisfying enough mm. you know uh, mentally or emotionally they want to do a little more but you have to make sure you don't kind of cross that um threshold into it being too much mm -hmm. in, in a given session so so yes to answer your question scale uh certain aspects of training to scale it uh is fine uh but then there are certain things that you just you shouldn't copycat gotcha you know? Just, just like, you know, I don't recommend anybody follow huddled up El Cap without a rope. You know, <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> well, I remember, yeah, no, what you're making me think of is, uh, I don't even know if this is true. I just remember hearing this anecdote from someone about Alex Magos and his training. And I don't know if he still does this, but uh, allegedly this is, you know, probably third hand or something or fourth hand. So it could be a total rumor, but at some point in his training, he would take a week calendar and take the seven days and divide every single day into a two-part, like an A and a B block. And then he would schedule training for... Um, so, so you have, you know, 14 blocks, right? Seven days, two blocks each. Yep, he would yep. schedule 13 things and then have like basically half of one day as a rest block. And then he'd have training mm. in 13 other blocks filling out the rest of mm. his week. So it's like he's doing two a days, six days a week, plus training once on the seventh day. <laughs> it's just like, no matter what you're doing, yeah. no matter what I was doing, no matter how low I scaled it, I, I would probably fall apart pretty quick trying to yeah. trying to do yeah. something like that. Well, so. you know, and I, I think there's probably a, a lot of truth to that uh, about Alex. But uh, again, those aren't 13... Um, limit sessions. Mm. Uh, you know, Alex is one of the best coached climbers that I know in terms of, you know, his coaches, uh, Patrick, Mat um, Patrick Matros and Dickie Korb have been training him since he was a teenager. Uh, and they're very smart guys and they always, you know, want the best for Alex and trying to dial him to the right place to be. And, uh, 
So one of those, you know, where he's doing two sessions a day for six days and then a, a one one-day session and one half-day rest, I would bet that a few of those blocks, like I, I've been to Cafe Craft in Germany where he trains or used to train and, you know, he would show up for a morning session, which basically involved just a lot of stretching mm-hmm. and just you know, mobility work. And so that could be one session. Um, And, you know, and another session could be just going for a a 10 kilometer run because Alex does a fair amount of running uh, as a route climber. That's a very smart thing to do. Uh, And, you know, so um, I don't know this for sure, but I would bet that, you know, out of those 13, you know, uh, session blocks in in that week, uh, maybe only five or six of them were really, really hard where mm-hmm. he was grinding. And, and again, for the average climber, that might break you. Uh, that would be too much. But he's not the average climber. He's one right. of the best in the world. Right. And so, uh, and that's the other thing we have to realize is, you know, these these pros, you know, they're, they are full-time climbers. That is their job. You know, if they were only training two or three days a week, you know, then they, they wouldn't have gotten to where they're at because, you know, when you climb for 20 years and you continue to improve for 20 years, obviously by necessity, your you know the the magnitude of your training and also the capacity of your training, especially if you're a route climber, has to increase by necessity. You know, marathon runners run massive amounts of miles, hundred mile weeks, week in and week out, um, and route climbers have to climb a massive amount as well. Uh, boulders, not so much. Um, and uh, it you know, and Alex is first and foremost a route climber. Uh, you know, that boulder's really hard. And um, so there's got to be a lot of climbing involved. And uh, and I'm sure, you know, he walks the line, you know, uh, as a lot of elite athletes do between overtraining and, you know, an optimal training. And mm. it's a very fine line, but that the threshold of that line is a little higher each year. As long as they're uninjured and not backtracking, that, that line has to go a little higher. So by necessity, there is a massive amount, but for uh, someone who's been climbing three years to try to copy Megos and do those 13 sessions a week, uh, you know, would probably not be appropriate. Right. Gotcha. Yep. Okay. So let's move on and, you know, uh, to number six and, uh, and this is one we all talk about a lot. And I think that the climbing coaching community has gotten really smart to emphasize. And that is, you know, um, well, the mistake is, uh, going to the gym and training your strengths. Um, and the countermeasure is going to the gym and making sure that you have at least a fair amount of time spent training up your weaknesses. Because after all, those are the things that uh, will give birth to new levels of performance. You know, the thing that you're really good at doesn't, uh, you know, won't take you to the next level very fast. Uh, but practicing, you know, your weak game uh, is what will make you better. You know, if you're a pro golfer and you have a great, you know, iron game, but you are dropping strokes, you know, week in and week out on the putting green, you know, more time in the driving range ain't going to fix that. It's, you know, more time putting is going to fix, you know, putting and, you know, putting is half of the game, half of the strokes. Uh, And so, you know, same thing with climbing. Um, If, again, if you had a good climbing coach observe you and they concluded that, you know, your limiting constraints are more related to technique and perhaps footwork and inefficient movement, then more time on the hangboard isn't going to fix that. I mean, not that the hangboard time is a waste. It may slowly help you achieve the next grade, 
But the quicker way to achieve the next grade is fixing the weakness, you know, improving your footwork, moving more efficiently. Uh, and, uh, you know, whether it's bouldering or sport climbing, there are so many technical and tactical aspects. And obviously the mental game is influential uh, that all of these things must be, you know, kind of, you have to scour all of those areas, um, seeking out weaknesses uh, to, um, you know, to correct and to make better. Uh, and so, you know, it's human nature to want to train things that we're good at. Uh, and, you know, so the person that we see this on Instagram every day, you know, the people that are the best at campus training, what do they do? You see, all you see is videos of them campus training, mm. uh, you know, or the people that can do all the feats of strength on a hangboard, you know, with one hand or whatnot, you know, are, you know, showing that make, you know, their Instagram makes it look like that's all they do. Now, if they're getting better as a climber, they're doing a lot of other stuff, mm. you know, yeah. um, but, you know, you might only see that one aspect, uh, but, you know, we all need to kind of look in the mirror and ask ourselves, you know, what is really holding us back and make sure that you're at least putting some time, some training emphasis, uh, and, you know, even crag emphasis, boulder emphasis on working those weak areas. And, uh, you know, my son, Cameron, who, uh, is a pretty good climber and he's getting into climbing coaching, you know, he's just, in, he's studying exercise science in college. And, uh, you know, he grew up, uh, in the house with a pretty good climbing coach and, uh, and, and, uh, you know, he's kind of spreading his wings and doing his own thing now. And, you know, he, uh, recently wrote an article, um, uh, explaining how, um, you know, his, you know, he's more of a route climber and, you know, kind of identified his style climb is short power endurance, you know, um, quick ascents, uh, whereas long, you know, 15 bolt cave routes were kind of his anti-style. And so realizing that, I don't know, a year ago, he set off on a mission to actually put a sixth month or more focus on training up his anti-style and taking his game to the next level. Mm, and, uh, cool. you know, it all kind of came to fruition earlier this year and he, he did three, nine A's in about 30 days. So now it's, they weren't new projects. They were kind of projects that he was working off and on over a period of time, but they all got sent in a 30 day period, which for young climbers, a pretty good run. And he <laughs> yeah. credits it to his philosophical change in his training program hmm. uh, and be willing to embrace what he was not good at. And you know what? That means going to the cliff or going to the gym and maybe sometimes even looking bad. You know, if you're getting on the thing that you're not good at, you know, you have to be willing to, you know, uh, humble yourself in that way. Hmm. Uh, but again, that is important. And I, you know, a lot of pro climbers that I've worked with uh, who you might think would be arrogant and cocky, you know, they will, when I talk training with them, they'll, they want to know what they're doing wrong. Mm. You know, they want to, they want to, they want me to scream at them what they're doing wrong. If there's one thing that can help them go to the next level, you know, what is it? And they uh, will willfully embrace it. But I think a lot of, you know, younger climbers, uh, you know, the, the massive climbers, we like to go to the gym uh, and go to the crags and boulders and do the things we're really good at. And yeah, there's days to do that for sure, where you really want to shine and feel good. And then there's days to kind of bite the bullet and uh, engage your anti-style or train your weakness. Um, and after all, that's really the path to um, becoming a master climber. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Can I ask you a personal question or a personal question about your climbing? Yeah, sure. What weaknesses are you working on in your climbing these days? Anything come to mind? Yeah, I mean, I, I can give you a physical one and I can give you a mental one. Uh, the, the physical one, I think, is my core is holding me back. And, you know, as an older climber, I have lots of aches and pains that are never going away. Uh, you know, my back, uh, you know, back issues, you know, from just life, you know, uh, and um, uh, core training hurts. Certain core exercises hurt. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, I, I started doing deadlifting because that really helped my lower back quite a bit to strengthen the spinal erectors. But then it kind of got to a point where it was actually making it worse, no. uh, you know, and doing two times body weight lifts, although it made me feel really good and kind of proud, uh, you know, reaching that benchmark. I realized that it's kind of a ridiculous benchmark for climbers. It's like some deadlifting is good. Excessive deadlifting is kind of a waste of time. And at my age was actually becoming counterproductive and causing some issues. So long story short, um, I, I am trying to uh, develop a stronger core. When I get on small hands and small feet on steep walls, I have trouble. Uh, if I have small hands and big feet or big hands and small feet, I'm great. But when mm. they both get small, I really have trouble. Uh, and well, that just sounds hard. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I'm trying to climb 13 plus. Yeah. Yeah. You know? uh, and so that's what it takes. And um, and so the core becomes so important when both hands and feet are small for a mm. given move. Yeah. The core becomes really, really important. Um, and so that's that's my physical weakness that I need to, if it's possible to take, you know, to level up, you know, I I, I think it would help me a lot. I don't know if it's possible, but I'm I'm trying to train around the aches and pains and see if I can make it happen. Uh, and mentally, it, it, it my mental weakness that I want to that I'm striving to spin up is this whole thing about long-term projecting, which you know we've had this conversation I think a few years ago, and you know I've as a weekend warrior never been a projector. You know, like for me, you know, through most of my climbing career, if a route took more than two days and five goes, I was moving on to the next route. Uh, just because it wasn't fun. I needed to send routes. I enjoyed climbing, not failing. Um, and my opportunities outside climbing were just weekends, mostly. Um, occasional longer trips here or there. And so to camp out under a route for a whole season to send a big grade just seemed ridiculous. But you know, now uh, where I see the end of my climate career coming up quickly because of age, you know, aging out, uh, potentially, uh, I feel more urgency. Um, I have a little more time on my hands. You know, I can work remotely um, in this modern era. Uh, I'm able to do that more often. And so I'm trying to get myself to put in more days into a project. And, you know, maybe I could, you know, still do AP plus, you know, maybe, uh, you know, um, I, in my mind, think it's still possible. You know, we see Bill Ramsey and uh, Chuck Odette. Yeah. 260 somethings doing it. Um, but what they both do, the hallmark of their climbing MO is massive number of days mm -hmm. on your route. Yeah. Uh, I think Bill Ramsey, you know, is not uncommon to put 40 or 50 days on a route, like to send a 14 at Clear Light Cave. Uh, and, you know, uh, Chuck Odette, I think the same thing, you know, massive number of days. 
I, I think the most days I've ever put on a route is, you know, maybe 15 or something mm. like, or 15, 15 goes, you know, maybe seven days. Mm. Uh, and yeah. that um, is like just overwhelmingly, you know, like a burden uh, for me. And so I'm trying to, um, I, I'm slowly, you know, um, uh, you know, turning the ship, you know, the, you know, it's like turning the Titanic, you know, uh, for me to make that move. <laughs> You know, it's not going to happen overnight. Um, and so, um, and uh, yeah, so, you know, that's kind of where I'm at. I, I, so I think maybe for me to do AP plus, there might, I, I think physically I'm capable. I really do. I, I, I know technically I'm capable. I, I have the experience and the skill set to do it. It's just a matter, am I willing to punch the clock enough days? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so that's something that, you uh, see where the story goes cool <laughs> awesome okay so um <clears throat> we're we're uh running down to the end of the list here uh the seventh uh common training for climbing mistake is doing everything right at the gym you know you're training appropriately you have a good plan uh you're you're training your weaknesses you're getting it all right in the gym but then you go home and you get a lot of stuff wrong. Mm. And this is, you know, where we can talk briefly about, you know, sleep and nutrition uh, and just other things in your life that might sabotage your performance. Uh, And, you know, I think this is something that we all fall victim to sometimes one way or another, Um, you know, and uh, there are, many different directions we could go here, but, you know, for a younger climber, it might be, you know, putting in an incredible, you know, week at the gym. Uh, and then it, you know, um, you know, Friday night ends up a late night with a dozen beers consumed and then Saturday spent hungover and trying to get yourself going. And then, you know, Sunday, you're back at the gym or the boulders feeling like shit. And it's like, so what was that last week of all that great training all about mm. when you just kind of, you know, stepped on a landmine Friday night. And right. there are, there, there are an infinite number of other scenarios that we could conjure up that would be quite similar, you know, uh, in terms of, you know, the self-sabotage, uh, you know, putting in great workouts and getting the sleep, but, you know, not consuming enough protein, not eating right. Uh, and uh, again, everybody's got to kind of find what makes, you know, what works for them. Um, you know, I've been around elite athletes who eat incredibly specific diets. Like they spend literally hours a day preparing their foods um, because they're so particular about every nutrient being spot on. And they're so good at it that they hardly need supplements because, you know, if you really can put together a good whole food diet with the right amount of carbs and fats and proteins, if you can, you know, design that with real foods, that's ideal. You know, a lot of people just don't have the knowledge or time to do that. And that's where protein powders and things like that can come in quite helpful to help you fill those voids. Um, But one way or the other, you, you need to fill those voids and make sure you're, you're hitting your macros um, and I think protein's one where a lot of climbers fall short. Uh, you know, you don't need 
massive amounts of protein like a bodybuilder on anabolic steroids does, you know, 200, 300 grams a day, that's ridiculous. No, you don't need that. But you do need anywhere from at bare minimum, a half a gram, um, I'm sorry, a gram of protein per half a pound of body weight. So I weigh 160. So for me, my bare minimum protein requirement is 80 grams. And that's really just enough to barely skim by, uh, you know, to support muscle protein synthesis and collagen synthesis. But if I really want to, you know, be optimal, I think I need more like 120 grams a day. And in a really stressful, extreme situation, especially if you're reducing carbs, you know, maybe trying to lean down uh, for a competition or in some situation you feel you need to lean down a few pounds and you're reducing carbs a bit, you actually want to go higher on your protein and, mm. you know, maybe go as high as one gram per pound of body weight, which for me would be 160 grams. Uh, now, I, I don't ever go that high, but I'm just saying that would be the upper limit, would be one gram per pound of body weight. So I would, you know, I stress to all climbers I talk to, make sure you're getting at least that one gram per half pound of body weight. That is the bare minimum. Um, and a bit more than that would probably be optimal. Uh, and, you know, there's, you know, we can't really get into nutrition in any greater depth, but obviously drinking enough water throughout the day and being hydrated is important and getting, you know, all the micronutrients that you need to support, you know, your red blood cell mass and, you know, uh, you know, uh, cellular function and, you know, um, just you know, all the um, aspects of our physiology that are stressed through climbing. Uh, if you want your body to perform its best, you need to, you need to fuel it the best. And so like, if you're, if you're training and you're trying to tune your body as if it's a Ferrari, but you're uh, putting, you know, 85 octane gas into it, uh, it's not going to run so well. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. kind of, you know, kind of the bottom line is to um, at, you, sometimes you have to kind of take a 35,000 foot view of just your entire life, not just what you do in the gym in the name of training, but just everything Things that cause you stress can slow down recovery yeah. and be counterproductive. You know, I think you know, there's, you know, so many different things that in one way or another can unknowingly uh, hinder recovery um, and hamper performance. Uh, and in, you know, some cases kind of add metaphorical, metaphorical, you know, weight to your body when you go climbing. You know, like if you're just, if, if there's something in your life that is emotionally weighty on you, something non-climbing in your personal life, that can definitely be a weight that is hanging over you and pulling you down, whether you're at the gym or the crag. Uh, and so I guess like this last mistake is not being aware of those other life factors, you know, whether it's sleep and nutrition or whether it's you know, stress and work or emotional instability, all of these things can have a profound effect on kind of the bottom line when it comes to your training for climbing and your climbing performance and your just overall well-being that I think, you know, the um, hopefully, you know, a more self-aware climber can come to see that Certainly when I was a younger person, I did not just because younger people don't have that life experience and don't maybe aren't quite um, tuned into things. Um, 
Though I think, you know, and I sound like a, a grandpa here, but I, I feel like younger people are kind of uncommonly wise for their age these days. Mm. Now I look at my sons, you know, in their early 20s. Yeah. And I think they have a level of wisdom and life savvy that I didn't have at that age. Um, yeah. And so I, you know, do you kind of get that? Or you yeah, I feel, I feel the same way. In the, in the younger people? Yeah. I mean, obviously you know, like anything, it, it depends, but I think, um, yeah, I, th I think kind of on average, or maybe it's just selection bias, like the type of folks that are listening to this podcast, the people that I meet out climbing, um, it does seem that way. Yeah, it seems like people yeah. have more access to, to more information and they're really thoughtful about stuff. And I'm surprised at the number of young people that are thinking about climbing and performance and improvement you know, not just in the gym, but also, you know, practicing meditation or getting interested yeah. in, you know, in, in therapy, um, yeah. whatever it is. Because I'm glad you touched yeah. on those things because the, you know, the the young person who's training really hard and then going and drinking 12 beers on a Friday. Yeah, I mean, someone listening might have that aha moment like, oh, that's that's not helping me. But I'm guessing most people get that, you know, like that's pretty obvious. Um, and if you're choosing to do that, you're probably just going to choose to do that anyway. <laughs> but, uh, but the stuff that, um, I'm appreciating more and more as my life goes on is just the, the stress, the grind of, um, of building a business, the pressure of building a business, um, you know, traveling and, and the way that that can pull you out of routines that, you know, healthy routines that, that, um, that help you stay on top of all those little things. Yeah, the more time goes on, the more the more and more I appreciate the effect that that stuff has on my training. Yeah. Like I can have an amazing training plan, but if I'm traveling a lot and life feels hectic, it's just not going to go as well as the times when I feel really grounded, have great supportive community, have close friends around, feel relaxed, get to go on nice walks on my rest days, things like that. All that stuff, it makes a really yeah. big difference. And it's it's easier to ignore or miss because of our at least at least in america i think because of our culture you know everything's just mm -hmm. fit more in do more yeah you know become a doctor while you're also trying to climb the hardest thing you've ever climbed and start a family and blah 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 <laughs> like we just <laughs> think we should be able to do it all but um yeah 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 i i think those are all great points steven and i guess you know, kind of the bottom line is, you know, this conversation is about training for climbing and, you know, optimizing climbing performance. Uh, but really, you know, I, I've always, um, or at least in recent years, you know, realized that, it, you know, you know, the goal is human performance, like our just becoming hopefully more effective in all we do. Uh, and, you know, it's kind of sounds self-helpish, but I mean, that's what training for climbing is, you know, and so, if, you know, through climbing, we become more tuned in to our life also outside of climbing and our strengths and weaknesses outside of climbing, you know, we can apply, you know, a lot of what we've talked about here today to just our everyday life, you know, in terms of avoiding, you know, pitfalls and, and uh, quicksand uh, that we might encounter in our life outside of climbing. And, um, and that might be the one place, despite the, I, I mentioned, I think youth, you know, young adults today are more wise and savvy, at least the ones that were around in our cohort. Um, 
but I also think young adults today have more potential traps uh, mm. that, that um, might be there, you know, uh, in terms of just addiction. And um, I mean, even, you know, I, as a young adult in my early twenties, I started writing climbing articles and climbing books. And I wrote like 10 books over 30 years. If I would have had an iPhone when I was in my twenties, <laughs> I, I don't think any of those books would exist mm. because you know, writing a book requires sitting down at a computer for hundreds of hours with no gratification whatsoever until like two years later when the book is published. <laughs> and yeah. um, so, you know, you know, the iPhone is wonderful of a device. It is, uh, you know, has its own, you know, it can, it can trap you and addict you. And, you know, I think can become a, a form of kryptonite. You know, there are many things in our lives that could become kryptonite. And I guess circling back to number seven, uh, you know, this whole concept of avoiding things uh, that detract from your efforts at the gym and, you know, uh, striving to uh, avoid self-sabotage. The, the best athletes, uh, you know, certainly the, the, the top climbers I've been around, you know, uh, many big name climbers from my generation to the current generation. And they are all people pretty exclusively of pretty incredible discipline um, and the ability, you know, yeah, most of them could party hard or know how to cut loose at a certain point in time, but also know how to reel it in and really um, walk the line of what it takes uh, at a particular time to get a project done or to reach the next grade you know, uh, and the amount of discipline it would take, like for a Tommy Caldwell to free Don Wall, you know, many years invested with no gratification, you know, very little progress, just up there suffering, basically. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, knowing what it took to get that done or or Honol to free Sol El Cap, you know, when the time was getting near and he knew it was like, you know, potentially imminent, one of the final steps he took was to shut his cell phone off for like a week or two prior to going up because he just didn't want anything clouding his mind and decision-making mm. and wanted to be at peace with the process. Uh, whereas these phones exert incredible influence on us, mm. uh, you know, one way or another, knowingly or unknowingly. And so the best thing for him was to turn that phone off and be totally detached. Um, and, uh, you know, and so in each of us, our own way, whatever our dawn wall is or our free solo of, the, of um, our cap is, uh, hopefully we can come to come to kind of self-detect what that Achilles heel is. You know, what is that little trap we're likely to fall into? Um, whether, you know, it's that, you know, you know, crazy and wild Friday night that is going to cost you for the next couple of days or week. Uh, or something else, you know, in our life that's going to hold us back or weigh us down. And, uh, you know, we all have uh, unique, you know, life storylines. And, uh, you know, I guess that uh, I think the beauty is we each get to kind of hopefully solve that puzzle on our own, you know, day in and day out. And, uh, you know, every day you wake up, it's like you have a fresh new start, you know, mm -hmm. no matter how bad the previous day or session was or, you know, workout was, yeah, uh, you can reinvent yourself every day, you know, so that's pretty cool. 
Appreciate you, Coach Hurst. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, I really enjoyed this. Good to talk to you again. I appreciate you checking in. And um, again, congrats on what you've done with your podcast. And I appreciate the support you've given uh, my brand, Fizzy Vantage, along the way. And uh, good luck in Switzerland. Thank you, sir. Yeah, it's a great partnership. I'm uh, I'm proud to uh, to support Fizzy Vantage, and really grateful for your support as well. Um, on that note, anything else that people should know about before we before we let you go? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously Fizzy Vantage. Any anything else that you're excited about right now? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I don't, I don't know how soon this will run, but I'll be traveling uh, this summer. I'll be at the uh, International Climbers Festival in Wyoming, and also the Ten Sleep Climbers Festival. They're both in Wyoming the first two weekends, I guess, of uh, July. So if any listeners are attending, say hi. Come, uh, you know, ask me a training question. I'm going to be teaching a clinic at Wild Iris uh, cool. one day, and uh, you know, I always enjoy traveling out and about and, uh, you know, just hanging out, having fun, talking, climbing, and, uh, and a little bit of sports nutrition as well. Of course. course. (laughs) Well, awesome. Yeah. This, um, maybe I'll move things around. I think this is like five weeks out if I just kind of publish things in chronological order, but I can do whatever I want because this is my podcast. Yeah, so maybe, you're the boss. <laughs> you're the boss. Yeah. Maybe I'll bump it up yeah. a little bit so people yeah. can get if that. If not, you can just you can just edit out that last little bit. So. <laughs> right on. Well, cool. Okay, Wilson, have a great trip, and uh, let's talk again. You know, uh, six or twelve months from now. We'll awesome. See how we're how we're progressing here. Yeah, it sounds good. Good luck with your final cram week of work, and um, yeah, I hope you get some some downtime on the trip. I hope you get to enjoy yeah. it. Good. Thanks, man. All right. Talk soon. Bye-bye. See ya. Hey, friends. A few quick reminders before you go. First thing, The Nugget is now on YouTube. We're sharing some of my favorite clips from the podcast in eight-minute-long videos, and they're super cool. I'm really proud of how these things are turning out, and the YouTube channel is a great way to sample other episodes before diving into a two-hour podcast, and it's a great way to revisit some of your favorite nuggets from the show. Just search for The Nugget Climbing on YouTube. I also put a tremendous amount of effort into the show notes for every episode. You can find those at thenuggetclimbing.com. If you ever want to learn more about a guest or watch the videos or buy the books we talked about or see the Instagram posts we talked about or whatever it is, you can find links to all of the things in the show notes for each episode at thenuggetclimbing.com, including links to all of my sponsors. Thanks again to all of my sponsors for this episode. You can check them out in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. You'll find a list of sponsors for this episode and their coupon codes, or just scroll down right there in your podcast app. I make it really easy for you guys to have great deals on some of my favorite products. Again, just scroll down right there in your podcast app or check out the list of sponsors in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. Finally, if you want even more great content, if you've been loving the show, I have a Patreon. I have tons of bonus episodes over there, almost 50 bonus episodes that I've published so far with past guests from the show with more bonus episodes coming all the time. They're called follow-ups. Follow-ups are some of my favorite interviews that I've done on the podcast. You'll get access to all of those and ad-free versions of the regular episodes, as well as uncut video interviews if you prefer to watch 
the video, all of that for $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash thenuggetclimbing to learn more. And there's a link for Patreon right there in your podcast app as well. Thank you guys for listening all the way to the end. I appreciate all of your support. I hope you're having an amazing week and we will see you next time.